This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 22nd, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Allison Yee walks us through the mysteries of an omnipresent antimicrobial. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First, we have a story on unlikely lichen. For almost 140 years, we've thought, I'm including myself here and the many lichenologists out there, that lichen are a combo organism, a symbiote made up of a fungus and a photosynthetic organism, either algae or cyanobacteria. But now they may be more complex than previously thought. Okay, Catherine, tell us why we should care about lichens. Because lichens eat rock for breakfast. (laughs) Literally, they do. Species that live on or inside rock can break them down to suck out the nutrients and mineral compounds inside, making soil. They also grow almost everywhere, in the soil, in toxic slag heaps, on tree bark, leaves, mosses, and even on top of other lichens. (laughs) They cover up to 6% of Earth's surface and make a lot of useful compounds, including many that are used in traditional and even modern medicine. I was just going to say, lichen aren't used for anything. (laughs) That's what you said, but now I'm telling you that, in fact, they're used in many ways. And they function as a two-party system, if you will. How do these different organisms work together to make a lichen? Much better than modern-day political parties. Um, As far as we know, the fungus, which is actually used to name the entire species, anchors the lichen and provides it with moisture and nutrients from the environment. The photosynthesizing partner produces food, glucose, and sugar alcohols that are absorbed by the fungus. But researchers have found a third partner, making this teate more of a menage a trois. (laughs) The new partner is also a type of fungus— a yeast whose role is still kind of uncertain. Scientists discovered it when they were trying to purify lichen DNA to see if they could get it to grow in the lab. It's really difficult to get these things to grow in the lab. What they found surprised them. Active genes from a previously unknown yeast. So instead of a fungus and, say, an algae, what they ended up with was a fungus 
a algae and a yeast all living together. And they found genes of the yeast at first? Is that what they started with? They saw gene activity from the yeast, but they also wanted to be sure of their results. So they analyzed lichen genomes from 52 different genera on six different continents. The result, a global phenomenon. They all had yeast partners. How long has this been going on? No, I mean, why haven't <laughs> we known that there, were this, there could be a third partner in a lichen? Well, for one, the yeast is very, very difficult to see. Its cells are embedded in a starch layer coating the lichen's wall-like microstructure. For another, it's hard to get the DNA out of these things. Because they can't easily be grown in the lab, you have to scrape them off of rocks. And when you finally do get that DNA, it's a mess. It's a mixture of two, and in this case, three different organisms. For me, this story just has a built-in wow factor. I mean, I'm not even being sarcastic. There is This has been going on right under our noses, and no one noticed. But is there a bigger message out there? Other than the fact that you now know they can be used in medicine? <laughs> there is a big message. This new study shows just how complex biological partnerships can be. It also shows how little we know about species that we've already studied pretty extensively. But the coolest takeaway for me is the very definition of a species. Here we have two organisms that work together in such tight harmony that some scientists call it a miniature ecosystem. Now we're adding a third partner to that mix. Next up, we have a story on links between tides and tremors. Let's take a little trip to Parkfield, California, where the San Andreas Fault is quietly building up steam to rip part of California off of continental North America. Not much is going on on the surface right now, but down deep, say 20, 30 kilometers, things are a little more interesting. We've got microquakes. What are they, Catherine? Microquakes are tiny, slow tremors deep below the Earth's surface, and they go off routinely where the crust which is brittle at the top and melty at the bottom, starts to get soft. But we didn't know much about these microquakes until very recently. That's because seismometers weren't sensitive enough to pick them up to any great degree. Now that the technology is better, and there are more of them out there, scientists have started to pick up a lot of these tremors in the lower crust. In these deeper regions, faults are weaker, and that means that other forces, including tides, can play a more important role. What can tides do to a fault deep down where it's starting to get a little bit weaker? The buildup of stress along fault lines like the San Andreas is intense. As tectonic plates try to push past each other, they get stuck. The lower, softer parts of the plate ooze right along, but the brittle crust at the top holds fast. When the bottom part gets jammed up but then releases, you've got a microquake. When the top shutters, bam, you've got a nasty surface earthquake on your hands. All sorts of factors can release the built-up strain. Scientists have long wondered if tiny movements in the Earth caused by the motion of the tides might be doing the same thing. Gravity from the moon and the sun affect not only the oceans, but it also affects the solid Earth, causing it to flex ever so slightly. This is other bodies pulling on the surface. Not just the water, you know, right. rushing over yeah, things and causing Yeah, it's actually change. the gravity of the moon and the gravity of the sun. And the thing is, is when they align, as they do once every two weeks, 
that pool that they exert is even greater. So there's daily tides. Right. And then you're talking about spring tides? That's right. Spring tides, as I said, happen twice each month when the sun and moon align and pull strongly on the planet. The new study links microquakes to these spring tides along with the daily tides that you just mentioned, giving scientists new insight into how stress builds up on small patches of the fault. There's a difference between what happens very deep underground and as you get higher, there's a gradation in the effect. Yeah, so that's a second yeah. item that's new. The first item is that these microquakes are linked to the spring tides. Before, they didn't know that. All they knew was that they were linked to these daily tides. But now they're like, okay, we can have a correlation here as well. But the other thing that is new is that I guess there's a much wider range of gradation in the crust in terms of what areas are being affected by these microquakes. And I also thought that the numbers in this paper were really interesting. How many did they look at? How many uh, readings did they end up taking? Yeah, using a catalog of 4 million tremors that occurred between 2008 and 2015, they pinpointed the location and the timing of the tremors in relation to the tides. Now that they have this correlation, this new information about gradations along the uh, depth of the fault, is that going to help with earthquake prediction, kind of what a lot of people tend to care about? Right. And, you know, it's actually what we as editors were looking for, too, because it makes for a great headline. Um, It turns out that these tremors are not going to be able to predict the next big one. But in the long term, they could help scientists understand how these big ones are set off. Some major earthquakes, like Japan's 2011 quake, are preceded by something called slow-slip events, in which part of the fault moves unnoticed by scientists, loading the fault to the point of rupture. Some scientists think that a burst of small tremors like this could signal a slow-slip event and let us know that a big rupture might be on the way. We don't have the data at this point to connect the events, but this is something that researchers are looking at as a possibility for the future. Last up, we have a story on inspecting without looking. Nuclear arms agreements are all well and good, but how do we know when there is a reduction in arms by a country? Why is it so difficult to go around counting up the nukes, Catherine? Nuclear powers like Russia and the United States have more than 15,000 such weapons. When they agree to reduce their stockpiles, though, it's very hard to verify if the warheads have been deactivated. The problem is, if you use a sophisticated imaging system to tell you that they are, in fact, deactivated, chances are you'll also be able to tell something about how they're made. Helping inspectors while still protecting warhead design is a nut that's so hard to crack, researchers have been working on it unsuccessfully for about 50 years. What we want is a system that looks inside weapons without actually looking at them. And there's a way to do this. I mean, that's why the story got written, right? Right. So in theory, there's a way to do this. This is a new proposal from researchers at MIT. And their proposed method of zero knowledge verification, as it's called, would allow the owners of these warheads to shield the inside of the weapon in a special material of their choosing. They wouldn't tell anybody else what the material was. It would be known only to them. So this is a type of physical encryption. 
inspectors would then send a high-energy X-ray beam through the warhead. Some of the X-ray photons would be absorbed by the nuclear materials. Just like in medical imaging, I don't know if you've had to go through any of this lately, um, but the pattern of X-rays that emerges can reveal the shape of what's inside. On its way out, the beam would pass through that pre-selected material, the one that nobody knows about but the owner, and that would scramble the information. You, you called it physical encryption. Does that mean basically there's a key, just like in a regular encryption system, where if only one person knows about it, then it's very hard for anyone else to descramble it. But if you have the key, That's correct. you can see the image. And so in this case, the key is what the material is that they're putting around the exactly. warhead. Exactly. That's the key. And what's so interesting is that because these nuclear nations would be able to select that material themselves, you know, they could make anything they wanted that works within the function of this warhead. So what exactly happens then when you have a warhead in the room and you're going to use this theoretical device to take a semi-picture of it? Semi-picture is a nice, nice phrase. I like that almost better than zero knowledge. (laughs) Um, So this semi-picture is made when X-ray photons hit that special material, causing it to emit gamma rays. And this process is known as nuclear resonance fluorescence. It basically gives you a fingerprint of what's inside. That can then be picked up by a nearby detector. But what's really neat is that this fingerprint that provides you with information about the layout and the composition of the warhead remains unknown to the inspectors because of that encryption material, that physical encryption material. The way inspectors know you know, if this is an active or a deactivated warhead is because they have a model that they can match that signature to. So they take a known deactivated warhead, run this test, figure out what the signature is. If they then run the test on a brand new warhead, they can match those signatures or that fingerprint and say, aha, these match, that means it's deactivated. This is theoretical. This hasn't been built yet. But what happens if it actually is built? Will it get used? Nuclear disarmament is all about trust. That's a hard thing for rival political powers to build, even under the best of circumstances. So even if the system gets built, which may take decades, it might take decades more to implement knowing how diplomacy works. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on modified gravity and another story on a new vitamin-powered battery. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on the UK science minister who kept his job. And what else? A list of the top science-related Pokemon Go hotspots. (laughs) Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. So, Jimmy, Uh you work here at Science. I do. I work with the digital media web technologies team. We build sciencemag.org. But you're not going to talk about a computer product right now. You're going to talk about Blue Apron. Oh, I love them. So what made you order Blue Apron and what did you like about it? Well, ironically enough, we started because I heard about it on a podcast. My wife and I were both like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And we're both 
we consider ourselves foodies. I affectionately refer to her as our super hippie, yeah. where she's always interested in like, I want fresh stuff and I don't want to. But we're also two working professionals who are always exhausted. So right. we gave it a try and it was really nice because you get to do the cooking. The other thing I really liked is, you know how on cooking shows, everything's always divided up into those little prearranged bowls of like two teaspoons of cumin and whatever. Right. This is kind of like that. The prescribed portion of spices and stuff is already there. And you can just toss it in and you can even hold back a little bit if you don't want as much. And so I'm looking now and for July they have spinach and basil pesto gnocchi. Sold. I'll take some <laughs> now, please. Uh, spiced pork tacos with avocado, pickled onion, and elote-styled corn. Oh. And summer vegetable pizza with garlic, lemon, broccolini. Ooh, broccolini. Yeah. So check out this week's menu. Get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. Blueapron.com slash S-C-I-E-N-C-E-M-A-G. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Uh, that's blueapron.com slash science mag, blueapron.com slash S-C-I-E-N-C-E-M-A-G. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. If you're listening to this show, if you're listening to the science podcast, you're probably like me, always looking to learn more and not necessarily about science. You may just have an inquisitive mind. And that's why you should consider signing up for the Great Courses Plus video learning service. They have over 7,000 video lectures and you access them just like any other online streaming service. You log in, look at the series available, watch one video from a course or watch the whole course. There really are an endless number of choices of topics. We're talking science like exoplanets, neuroscience, things like that, but also cooking, photography, history. Once you start a series, you can go back in. You can even use an app on your phone to pick up where you left off. And these lectures are presented by very engaging professors who really know the material well. The Great Courses Plus is even giving science podcast listeners a special chance to get unlimited access to all of these lectures for free. I want to particularly call out Understanding the Brain. It's a lecture series presented by Jeanette Norden, and it covers everything you could possibly want to know about the brain, pain, learning, sensory processing, personality, dreams, really the whole gamut of what neuroscience has to offer. So if you sign up today for The Great Courses Plus, as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get free, unlimited access to one month of The Great Courses Plus, including Understanding the Brain, presented by Jeanette Norden. Start your free month today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. Despite concerns about antibiotic resistance, it seems like antimicrobials have crept into everything. Hand soap, toothpaste, some fabric even has this stuff in it. What does the omnipresence of these compounds in and around people's lives mean for our microbiomes? Allison Yee is here to talk about an antimicrobial in particular called triclosan, which has been partially banned in the European Union. So Allison, what was the rationale for the ban there? 
Okay, so the European Union banned triclosan from products that come into contact with food in 2010. So there have been some health concerns around triclosan, including lab tests with animal models that have shown some endocrine disruption and some carcinogenic potential. So in the EU, they did a comprehensive review. While they didn't comment on whether or not it was endocrine disrupting or carcinogenic, they did decide that it was a candidate for substitution because it's pretty toxic in the environment and it has the potential to accumulate in the environment as well. And in Minnesota, they had some concerns about antibiotic resistance and also lulling the public into a false sense of security with hand washing, where if you say this is an antimicrobial soap, maybe you're not doing the full CDC recommended 20 seconds of hand washing. And so maybe having this product on the market is actually decreasing the efficacy of these hand washing procedures. So you're just saying that that it's giving people a false sense of security about hand washing, which is really interesting. So when you wash your hands, does this work? Does this kill off all the bacteria? 99.9% is what I often see on the soap in various bathrooms. Right. And that's a huge issue because most studies have recently shown that there's no difference in terms of killing bacteria between normal soap, plain soap, and antibacterial soaps that contain triclosan. A lot of the lab studies showing that triclosan is a broad-spectrum antibacterial agent were done just on triclosan. But when you have it in a soap setting and you're only mimicking a 20-second hand washing, there doesn't seem to be a difference. It does kill a lot of the bacteria on your hands, but whether or not it's any better than plain soap is what the FDA is actually looking into now to see not only is this a safe measure, but is it actually doing anything above this baseline of plain soap? And in the studies that mimic hand washing, it doesn't seem to. So you can get triclosan being more effective than plain soap, but only after nine hours or something where that's not a realistic amount of time to wash your hands. Yeah, that would be a whole, basically a third of your day just washing your hands. It's still okay to incorporate this in different products here in the U.S. Where might we find triclosan in our everyday lives? Well, it's really in everything. So hand soap, dish soap, those are the most common things that we think about, disinfectants and cleaners, but also a lot of cosmetics, shampoos, body washes, shaving gel, Socks and shoes have started to incorporate, and then a lot of plastics, such as cutting boards and kids' toys. So it's really ubiquitous, and in fact, I think it's about three-quarters of the U.S. population have detectable levels of triclosan in their urine. What are the companies trying to accomplish by incorporating this antimicrobial into so many things? Triclosan was introduced in the 1970s as a surgical scrub. It's very effective in disinfecting hospital settings. I think it crept into everyday use almost as a marketing technique in terms of Americans thinking that microbes are bad and wanting to have very clean surfaces in the home. And a lot of people thought, oh, this antibacterial soap is better than regular soap, even before those claims had been backed up at all. Then as a commercial edge, it came introduced into everything. So it was more of a marketing than, say, a requirement that their products meet some kind of safety standard or something like that. It became more of everyone else is doing it. All of these toothpastes contain triclosan, so ours should do. We don't really know that it's killing off a ton of bacteria on our hands when we wash it. And obviously, these other uses, too, may not be killing bad germs exclusively. What, what about our microbiomes if we're rubbing this all over our body and even ingesting it in the case of toothpaste? Right. That's a really good question and I think an important one to understand. There haven't been a lot of studies in humans. So we've looked at the literature and there are some studies in fish and minnows that found perturbations in the gut microbial communities following exposure to triclosan. 
in humans, one of the only studies that has been done was a crossover control study. So what they did was they gave a bunch of volunteers triclosan-containing cosmetic products and soaps to use for four months or the same products without the triclosan and then switched to the groups. And they found that even though while the volunteers were using the triclosan-containing products, they had higher levels of triclosan in their urine, there was no impact on their microbiome, on their incisors, their molars, or the stool microbiome. And so it seems as though they didn't identify any microbiome effects in humans. But in rats, there have been some studies that show that the microbiome can change with triclosan exposure in these fish and minnow studies. As I mentioned before, there were perturbations. And so sussing out why we have these effects in animal models and not in humans is going to be important. And I think there's a couple of different possibilities. In humans, it's mainly topical exposures and shorter time frame, as I mentioned, the 20-second hand washing or something like toothpaste that you are rinsing out, ingesting a little bit of, but for the most part, not eating. Whereas in the fish and minnow, this was added to their diet or it was in the water that they were swimming around in. So these are much more, much larger quantities and exposures to triclosan. Another possibility in the rat study, they found that the rats were vulnerable to changes in the microbiome at the adolescent life stage, but less so as adults. And so there could be something during the life course of the microbiome that it's more vulnerable at certain stages. There's this bigger picture that's addressed in the EU ban, which is what happens when this gets into the environment? What has the research been showing there? Triclosan has been found in the majority of surface and wastewater in the U.S., And there's some concerns because it seems to be directly toxic to algae and some aquatic life. In the minnow study, they were looking at environmentally relevant levels, so levels that the fish would be exposed to swimming around in the water. And this caused the perturbations in the gut community. They were able to see recovery in those gut communities when they withdrew the triclosan, but in the natural world, these fish will be always swimming around in triclosan-containing water. And then there have been studies in environmental and riverine biofilms that did not recover from triclosan perturbation. And so that's really a concern if we're, because triclosan has this ability to bioaccumulate, you can get high quantities of it and it's only going to get worse over time. I mentioned antibiotic resistance at the very beginning. Is that something that triclosan is likely to be contributing to? So that is something that has been a source of concern. So triclosan's mode of action is similar to some other antibiotics. And so because we can get resistance to triclosan, a lot of people are worried that you can get cross-resistance. And so bacteria that are resistant to triclosan might be more resistant to other antibiotics. In the lab setting, it's fairly easy to develop triclosan resistance, but the jury is still sort of out on how widespread this is in the environment. But even without causing resistance mutations, it's possible that triclosan can select for resistant bacteria. There have been a couple of studies to see whether triclosan is affecting the antibiotic profiles of some of these bacteria. And In methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus and in Pseudomonas, over a 10-year period of triclosan exposure, there didn't seem to be a change in their antibiotic susceptibility profile. It's a really long study. It is a long study. But a recent report did show that triclosan was affecting ampicillin and ciprofloxacin response in Staphylococcus aureus and in E. coli. So we're not sure, but I think the bottom line is that if we find that triclosan is not useful for the purpose that we think it is in terms of being antibacterial, if we even need that in our everyday lives, then is it worth all these potential risks? Right. So there's a ton of open questions. Does it keep our hands clean? Does it hurt the human body? Does it hurt the environment? Does it hurt the microbiome? Does it promote antibiotic resistance? And the answer is 
we don't know, even though a lot of research has been done. So what what's going to happen next with this question? So I think on a policy level, there's a lot that's happening. So Minnesota state ban is going to go into effect on January 1st, 2017, and that will ban all products containing triclosan. The FDA is still reviewing to see how effective triclosan is. The onus is on the companies that are producing antibacterial products to prove that their products are indeed better than their products without triclosan. And a lot of them have already started to reformulate without triclosan. So I think on a policy level, we'll see less and less triclosan in everyday products. It still seems to be really valuable in a hospital setting, as its original purpose was as a surgical scrub. And it's effective against a lot of nasty bugs that are in the hospital. And because I think a lot of time that we spend in the hospital is often as infants, most people are born in the hospital. And that's a really vulnerable period of time for the microbiome as it's developing. That will be really interesting to understand how it affects our microbiome because we are so vulnerable as infants. And that would be hopefully in the future where we'll be most exposed to triclosan. So I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. And I think more research needs to be done to really determine what is it about triclosan that is harming our microbiomes if it is. Wow, it, this is a very active field yes. of research, I guess. <laughs> One thing I put in here that I, I don't know if we can really tackle it in this format, but I have never heard of the microbiome as being a consideration when trying to decide whether or not a drug or a chemical is safe. Is that something that is going to keep coming up when it comes to regulating things down the line? I think it's something that should be. I think that the reason we haven't yet is we don't quite know what is considered a safe threshold for microbiome perturbation. And that's something that we need to home in on, decide what is an acceptable level of microbiome perturbation, what are what perturbations are acceptable. Because everything changes the microbiome, but transient change in diet will have some effect as well. So what is noxious versus safe? And then when we have that idea, then we can start considering the microbiome. But because they outnumber our human body cells, it's a huge safety consideration that we need to think about. Allison, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Allison Yee is an MD, PhD student in the Committee on Microbiology in the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>